Hello everyone and welcome to another spooky Friday night. It's Roxy from New England Curiosities. Thank you so much for joining us tonight for some ghost stories and a touch of the macabre. This is our little Friday night escape to share some ghost stories and to really step back into New England's dark and mysterious past. Um, if this is your first time with us, uh, my name is Roxy Zwicker from New England Curiosities and I have been doing ghost tours in Portsmouth, New Hampshire for just about um, 20 years. I started doing ghost tours in Massachusetts back in the 1990s and I have amassed a huge collection of ghost stories in my repertoire. And on our Friday night ghost story talks, I share a story sometimes from our tours and a story that I don't really have a lot of opportunity to tell. Some stories never really get to see the light of day. So I'm really excited to bring you some of the, the lesser talked about stories. And of course, um, as we share our stories tonight, I hope that you are snuggled up with a bowl of popcorn or something to just sit back and relax and escape for a little while. Uh, the story that I'm going to be sharing with you first though about the Haunted Cemetery comes from a book on, guess what? Haunted Cemeteries. Whose book is that? I don't know. Whose book is that right there? I don't know whose book that is. All right, so you ready to settle in for some spooky tales and um, this has lots of different components to it which is really exciting so it's not just one ghost story at this location all right so the stroll through old burial hill in plymouth massachusetts is perhaps one of the most alluring in new england with each step up the slanting stairs you see more of them twisting paths shadowed trees, and then hundreds upon hundreds of tombstones, each one a reminder of a soul who passed through here lifetimes ago. Once you've reached the top, you get a fine view of the ocean beyond, above the rooftops of all of the old downtown buildings. Sunlight filters through the trees, creating twisted shadows on the gravestones, and each shadow moves slightly with every gentle breeze. The paths wind through the trees and down the steep sloping hillsides. The stones are so tightly crowded together that it would be nearly impossible to have one person standing in front of each stone comfortably. There almost doesn't seem to be enough room for everyone that is buried there. With the variety of carved facial expressions on the many portrait style stones, one can't help but wonder if they are the correct portrayals of those who are buried there. The stories here are rich in American history, which is fitting given that the cemetery stands at the birthplace of America. The burial ground is 165 feet above sea level and was an early lookout post for the pilgrims. The first fort built on the hill was built in 1622. Then it was modified several times and after approximately 50 years, the fort was abandoned. Sometime around the 1670s, the area was used for burial purposes. A majority of the older stones in the burial ground were British made and were shipped across the waters as ballast. The oldest surviving tombstone here today is from 1681. 
The stones here are a visual connection to some of the most fascinating stories from this old settlement. One of the most noticeable grave markers is that of Governor William Bradford. The over eight foot tall marble obelisk marks the grave of the man who was elected Governor of Plymouth County 30 times. Born in Osterfield, Yorkshire, England in March of 1588, he was the second signer and primary architect of the Mayflower Compact. He is known as the historian of Plymouth County because of his 270 page journal later named the History of Plymouth Plantation that chronicled the history of the Pilgrims and the original settlement in Plymouth. During the winter of 1656 and 1657, William Bradford was quite ill, and on May 8, 1657, he predicted to his friends and family that he would die. And he did, the next day at the age of 69. The inscription on his stone reads in part, Under this stone rests the ashes of William Bradford, a zealous Puritan and insincere Christian governor of Plymouth Colony from 1621 to 1657 except 69 in five years, which he had declined. There is a small stole stone in remembrance of Caleb Cook, a soldier who was killed in the infamous King Philip War. King Philip was a Wampanoag Indian leader who led an uprising against the New England colonists, which was known as King Philip's War. These raids were proportionately one of the bloodiest and costliest in the history of America. More than half of New England's 90 towns, including Deerfield, Haverhill, Northfield, Bridgewater, Situate, and Northampton, were assaulted by Native American warriors in the 17th century. In a battle at Providence, Rhode Island, Caleb's gun, after an initial misfire, shot King Philip directly in the heart. After the fatal shot, Caleb ran out of the bushes to exchange guns with him, as he desired to have the gun that King Philip carried. This gun was a treasured heirloom that was passed down to the Cook family for hundreds of years. King Philip's body was drawn and quartered, and his limbs were hung from the trees, and his decapitated head was brought back to Plymouth, where it was put on a stake and displayed for over 30 years. Ooh. There is the local legend, of course, connected to the burial ground, to a witch known as Mother Crew who many believe was responsible for putting several people in their graves at Old Burial Hill. Mother Crew was avoided by many people in town, whether or not they believed in witchcraft. She was thought to be responsible for causing plants and crops to rot on the vine with no explanation. Her spellcraft was blamed for ships being driven ashore along the coast. There was even a story about her causing villagers to be stricken with smallpox. There was an occasion where Plymouth resident Southland Howland rode up to Mother Crew's door and attempted to seize her property as he felt that he was the rightful owner. Howland demanded that she give up her home to him under the law of entail, which was a common law that restricted the sale of property, protecting the inheritance of the heirs, as her home just happened to be in a very desirable location. With a snap of his whip upon Mother Crew's door, Southland lamed claim to the property. When she stood firm and told him that he had no rights to claim, he told her that he would tear down her cabin by next Friday. Angered by his threats, she responded, On Friday, they'll dig your grave on Burial Hill. 
I see the shadow closing in all around you. You draw it in with every breath. Quick, go home and make your peace. Undeterred, Southland replied, Bandy know which words with me, woman. On Friday, I will return. With that, he swung on to his horse, landed on his saddle, when all of a sudden, a black cat jumped onto Mother Crew's shoulder, hissing. Her anger raged, and she raised her hand and cried, Your day is near its end. Repent. But Southland just reiterated his demands. Bah, you have heard what I said. If on Friday you are not elsewhere, I'll tear the timbers down and bury you in the ruins. Enough, shrieked Mother Crew. My curse is on you here and hereafter. Die and then go down to hell. Mother Crew's cat jumped on the horse, clawing at him, and the horse ran off wildly. A sinister fog encircled the town and brought a cold gloom to the air. Just before dark, the dead body of Southland Howland was found lying on the ground not too far from Mother Crew's house. Southland Howland's sudden death was unexplained and to this very day remains a mystery. Was it just happenstance that his corpse was buried on Friday on Burial Hill? You decide. In his book, Dr. LeBaron and His Daughters, published in 1890 by author Jean G. Austin, describes Mother Crew commanding a curse. So the next passage is from this book from 1890. So what was she like? But Mother Crew's face showed no sign of relenting as she gazed upon the trembling figure decked out with its poor attempt at bridal finery. Indeed, an added scorn and detestation seemed to gather upon her brow, and bending over the girl, her arms stiffly extended upward. She deliberately cursed in all detail to be gathered from the black and bitter pages of wizard lore, sleeping, waking in her home and among her neighbors, in her body and in her soul, in her life and in her death, and in a dishonored grave. And may your husband fail in all he undertakes and die of a broken heart. And may all your sons be injured and your girls lightened and deserted as mine have been, with no one to pity or to help. So this is the curse, allegedly, that she had put out there. So oddly enough, this curse... The story goes on to say that a young sailor named Ansel Ring was cursed by Mother Crew, and it was soon revealed. Ansel was a sailor on the ill-fated brigantine, the General Arnold, under command of Captain James McGee of Boston in 1778. A terrible blizzard blew into Plymouth Harbor the day after Christmas. Perilously, in danger off the shore, the ship dropped anchor and was hung up in an area known as White's Flats. It's a treacherous sandbar just northwest of the breakwater. Fierce waves pummeled the ship and the bitter winter temperatures dropped below zero. Captain McGee told the crewmen to put rum in their shoes to ward off frostbite. But many instead decided to drink the rum instead of putting it in their shoes. Soon after drinking the rum, many of them died very quickly thereafter. In the blinding snowstorm, the crew desperately tried to survive the night. Their screams through the wailing winds could be heard in the settlement from across the water. 
The frosty morning light revealed 72 exposed bodies, frozen to death, and strewn all over the ship. Dr. Thatcher, a Plymouth native, viewed the horrible discovery and chronicled the account. So his words here. 70 dead bodies, frozen into all imaginable postures, were strewed over the deck or attached to the shrouds and spars. About 30 exhibited signs of life, but were unconscious, whether in life or death. Their features dreadfully distorted. Some were standing, some were bent forward, some sitting with the head resting on the knees with both arms extended, clinging to the spars or some parts of the vessel. The dead were piled on the floor of the courthouse, and it was said that Dr. Robbins fainted when he was called to perform the religious services. On Burial Hill, a mass grave was dug for those who died on the ship. There was no complete list of names for those on board, and many of the voyagers had been picked up in Boston before the brig had set sail south, and they hadn't been on board long enough for the captain to log in their identities. The tragedy cast a dark shadow on Plymouth that year. The townspeople who had witnessed a horrific scene, who heard the screams, they wanted to forget, but couldn't. Years passed, and somehow the weight of time buried the tale on Old Burial Hill. Alongside one of the many pathways in the burial ground is the monument that serves as a reminder of those dark days in 1778. Buried on the hill is Ansel Ring, who froze to death on the ship. And there is a stone on the hill marking the grave of Hannah Howland, who died of a languishment January 25th, 1780. Hannah is said to have died of a broken heart because of the passing of her lover, Ansel. Perhaps Mother Crewe's curse had come to pass. The monument marking the grave of the sailors and the brigantine General Arnold can be found at the far edge of the burial ground near the Russell Street parking lot. The inscription details the story. On the southwesterly side, it says, Oh, falsely flattering were yon billows smooth, when forth, elated, sailed an evil hour, that vessel whose disastrous fate, when told, filled every breast with sorrow and each eye with tears. There are numerous tales from the locals who came to see the image of the brigantine General Arnold. They describe it as a phantom ship that sails the harbor, almost like a mirage. So you have a ghost ship in this story, too. Throughout the cemetery, there are stones that tell a variety of stories. There are numerous stones for shipwrecks, and those lost at sea can be found with remarkable carvings. There is the gravestone for Captain Chandler Holmes, who died October 4, 1831, at the age of 27. The image depicts a sinking ship in the ocean with a trumpeting angel flying above. There is the grave for Richard Holmes, who drowned in the Pacific Ocean, and died near the port of Lima, Peru, at the age of 22. This dramatic carving reveals an angel trumpeting over a floating coffin. The image of another carving depicts a tragedy at sea. Lightning bolts, bands of rain, and waves washing over a ship's deck can be seen carved on the stone for Joseph Churchill, who died at 54. The epitaph reveals the ill-fated voyage of the brigantine Plymouth Rock in November 1836, bound to Rochelle in France that foundered at sea. The same stone conveys the story of his son, who also met a watery fate. Captain Joseph Lewis of Portland, Maine, at the age of 37, died on the brigantine Androscoggin in August of 1842. 
There are quite a large number of portrait stones throughout the burial ground. Some of the carvings for women depict them being adorned with necklaces, and many have hearts on them. A fascinating carving for Nathaniel Morton depicts a well-dressed man rising from behind a grave marked with two skulls and crossbones. The hill itself is not without its ghostly legends as well. With all of the fantastic carvings and tragic tales, it's not surprising that the spirits are very active. Visitors to the burial ground have claimed to have seen shadow people wandering the grounds, sometimes walking between the trees, as if the ghosts of the past keeping watch. There is an unsettling story of a group of five people who wander between the stones on a gloomy November evening. While the group stopped to talk, they heard loud footsteps coming up the sidewalk directly towards them. The group frantically searched for the source of this sound, but found nothing. They quickly found the nearest exit and made a hasty retreat in complete disbelief of what had just transpired. Tour groups regularly walk the well-trodden paths, and stories have been told of cameras capturing mysterious light anomalies, orbs, and other unexplainable phenomena. There is a building close to the cemetery that is also rumored to be haunted. The top floor was used by medical students who dissected fresh bodies obtained from Burial Hill. Another noteworthy burial site in town is on Coles Hill which affords a sweeping view of the bay into which the Mayflower had sailed and the shore on which its passengers had landed. At the foot of Coles Hill is Plymouth Rock, legendary landing site of the, the pilgrims and stepping stone to the New World. On the hill there is a statue of Massasoit that reads, Great Sachem of the Wampanoags, protector and preserver of the pilgrims, 1621 erected by the improved order of red men as a grateful tribute in 1921. Nearby is a sarcophagus, which contains the bones of the pilgrims that have been found at various times near its location. It was erected by the General Society of Mayflower Descendants in 1920. A part of the inscription reads, the monument marks the first burying ground in Plymouth of the passengers of the Mayflower. Here, under the cover of darkness, the fast dwindling company laid their dead, leveling the earth above them, lest the Indians know how many were their graves. There are numerous accounts of this particular burial site being discovered in a rather grisly manner. In the book, The Pilgrim Republic by John Goodwin published in 1879, the following is recounted. In a storm, of 1735, a torrent pouring down Middle Street made a ravine in Coles Hill and washed many human remains down into the harbor. In 1855, these graves were exposed when they were laying the public conduit on Coles Hill. In one grave lay two skeletons pronounced by surgeons as male and female. The man had a particularly notable forehead and it was fondly surmised that here were the remains of Mr. and Mrs. Carver. These found a new grave on Burial Hill, but the other relics with barbaric tastes were placed on top of the stone canopy over the forefather's rock. In 1879, during some work on the southeast side of the hill, many more bones were unearthed, and some with questionable taste were carried home by the spectators in remembrance of their renowned sires. So 
Have a bow and for a souvenir. Plymouth is a resting place for the brave men who settled this wild land, who suffered and struggled to shepherd the beginnings of what became a free nation. Perhaps their spirits look out over the hills of this deep-rooted town and still keep watch over the rolling waves of the bay. So, Burial Hill in Plymouth. You definitely should check that location out. It's really just such a wonderful collection of historic gravestones, amazing stories. I mean, look at all of those stories that we just scratched the surface of. So this is uh, one of the places that is probably, I'd say, on my top 20 list of burial grounds in New England to go and visit. And again, the view up there is absolutely beautiful. I first visited Burial Hill in my 20s. I was actually doing ghost tours in Carver, Massachusetts. And at the time we were doing haunted wagon rides through the woods and there were lots and lots of stories. Um, usually when we were done in the evening, we would all ride down to Plymouth and take a walk to the burial ground and walk through town and have dinner. And it was just so incredible. So for three years, I actually worked um, in a bit of the vicinity of Old Burial Hill, just a town over, which was really, really incredible. So um, add that to your list. I hope you really enjoyed our first story for tonight about Old Burial Hill. And if you have any pictures or stories or experiences, you can feel free to go ahead and um, let me know. I'd definitely be interested to see if you visited Burial Hill and if you have any comments or thoughts about that location. And um, what we're gonna do is we're going to switch to another story, one that I tell in a lot of my presentations. And it's one that when I first started telling it, a lot of people didn't know um, about this particular woman and um, what had happened. And of course, it's um, both a ghost story and a historical story as well. And this is um, gonna be the story of Half-Hanged Mary. Now, um, as I mentioned, I grew up in Western Massachusetts. I lived in Northampton for a number of years, the Connecticut River Valley. It's absolutely beautiful out there. And I have to tell you, in grammar school, when I started hearing um, stories of local folklore, of course, I would manage to go and try to check a lot of these places out. And tonight's story is from Hadley, Massachusetts. So Hadley is a neighboring town to Northampton. It's right across um, the Calvin Coolidge Bridge. And Hadley still remains, for the most part, a farming community. And the way the area was actually settled is when the explorers had come over um, from England, they would make their way up the Connecticut River from Connecticut. So you'll find that as you come up the river, all of these little farm settlements had been established. So, you know, places like Hadley and Hatfield and Sunderland, um, Northampton, all of those little towns right through there. And they still do retain a lot of their charm. Um, they still do have lots of folklore and stories, lots of great burial grounds as well, but I think they're a lot lesser known than, um, than some people might, uh, might realize. So the story of Halfing Mary goes back to the 1600s. In fact, um, Mary had come over from England and um, her father lived in Springfield, Massachusetts and had come up the river and her and her husband, William, actually had settled in what is now Hadley. Um, when they settled in Hadley, they really seemed to initially have great connections to the community. In fact, um, her, 
uh, her husband and brother were part founders of Hadley, the Websters. And um, it's, it's really kind of funny. At some point, they lost their status and ended up living in the town poorhouse in a section of Hadley that is known as the Meadows. And it was really the responsibility of the community to take care of the Websters, which to a degree, a, a lot of people really resented. You know, what was this fall from grace that they had had? And, you know, why didn't they try to sustain themselves? Let alone on, on top of that, Mary Webster was known for having a very sharp tongue. And she would speak out very strongly if she was offended. And it was known that she would use, um, dare I say, very harsh words. So Mary started to get this reputation. And again, people were angry that they had to take care of these folks. So it soon started to be rumblings in town about her potentially practicing, any guesses, practicing witchcraft. And the stories really started to begin pretty much right on her doorstep. There was a path that went through the meadows to town. So the farmers would drive their animals through there. And the word was that whenever they went to pass Mary or pass where Mary lived, as they got up to the doorstep, the animals would just stop right in their tracks and not go any further. And the belief was it was because Mary was stopping them from going any further. So she had had some sort of energy or some sort of curse that was going on there. And in researching the story after initially hearing it, I was very surprised and dare I say deeply saddened to find that whenever the animals were misbehaving, that the men would actually go in the house that Mary lived, in the poorhouse, and they would actually beat her until the animals would pass by. Very, I mean, very, very primitive means there. So as that story started to progress about Mary casting these curses, it just so happens that a house in, in um, a neighbor in a nearby house had said that a chicken came flying down their chimney, landed in a pot of boiling water, and it just so happens days later when Mary was seen, allegedly she had a scar on her body which was in the same area as that of the chicken. So the story was that Mary, for whatever reason, had decided to shapeshift into a chicken and spy on her neighbors. Now I know that sounds very strange, but guess what? That was enough to have her brought into court and formally accused of witchcraft. The case went to the courts in Northampton, Massachusetts in March of 1683. And the case was actually moved from Northampton to Boston, Massachusetts. When it went to Boston, Governor Bradford dismissed all cases. So, you know, she was acquitted. All of the accusations were put aside. There was no proof. And how do you prove that someone shapeshifts into a chicken anyways? Whatever the case was, she ended up going back to Hadley, Massachusetts. However, the story only got stranger and, dare I say, more scary at this point. It just so happens that Across town, as she moved back into the poorhouse, a gentleman named Philip Smith, who is about, I'd say probably about 50, um, 50 or so years old, 
he became very, very ill. Now, initially, it was a thought that he had just come down with an illness that could be tended to. And I have to tell you, he was the, the deacon of the church in town. And the folks in town were still very upset about the situation um, with Mary Webster that she was brought back. And when strange things started to, to happen, um, and this was the winter of 1684, it was blamed on Mary. In fact, the story went to say that when they were preparing pots of medicine and food and everything they needed to tend to him while he was bedridden and very, very ill, that the pots of medicine would empty, that any food that they had prepared for him would either burn or be unable to be eaten. And further, observing him laid out in his bed was also quite disturbing for many who were in attendance because they were saying that flames of fire were appearing out of nowhere on the bed. The bedclothes would appear to have been moved by what some people believe to be an animal on the bed. So imagine a, an unseen cat jumping up on the bed and the clothing being moved. So immediately as strange things started to happen, people wondered if in fact it was Mary. So as the time went on, people also started to notice that whenever they tended to the man, physically tended to him, that he would appear really still. Strange holes were appearing in his body. He was getting bruises. So some of the men in town decided to go over to the poorhouse, drag Mary out of the house. They went up to the hill in town put a rope around her and strung her up in the tree while all of this was happening. And hoping that they could hang her and stop this man from, you know, this terrible alleged curse that she had put upon him. And next thing you know, they believe that she was dead, cut her down, buried her in the snow. However, the story went on. The man who was in the bed continued to get very sick. In fact, it wasn't very long overnight that he had died. After he had been dead for some hours, fresh blood started to run down his face. There were noises in the house that could not be explained, allegedly, that chairs were rattling about, and it seemed like there was someone moving in the room that couldn't be seen. Nobody could quite understand what was going on. In fact, if you want to delve into the story um, even a little bit more, you'll find that um, Cotton Mather actually wrote about this. Um, and um, Thomas Hutchinson, um, in a book about the Massachusetts Bay Colony, also wrote about Half Hang Mary. And it's very interesting that after the minister, after the deacon passed away, who just happened to be walking by the minister's house? Mary Webster. She had picked herself up, climbed out of the snowbank, and walked home. Now, here was a woman who at that point was nearly 70 years old. She had been rung up in the tree. The men in town thought that she was dead in fact, buried her in the snowbank, believing that she was a witch, 
this man dies and here she is walking down the road. Oddly enough, she lived for another 11 years after that. 11 years. So if anybody had any doubts in the community about something strange with Mary, you bet they believed at that point that it was so strange. After that, they left her alone. But there's some interesting footnotes to a little bit more about this story. Mary uh, was buried in the, um, the burial ground in Hadley. It's actually surrounded by a whole bunch of cornfields there. She's buried there with her husband, William. I've walked the burial ground many times and taken photographs. In fact, um, last night in our workshop, I actually shared a few photographs um, from the Hadley burying ground. I cannot find a gravestone for her and that really doesn't surprise me. Um, for many years growing up, I had heard the burial ground was haunted by shadow people similar to that in which we had talked about the burial ground on um, in Plymouth. So, of course, she became known as Half-Hanged Mary. However, one of Mary's descendants is actually quite famous. And I don't know if you um, know the, uh, the author, Margaret Atwood. Hopefully you do. Um, she's, of course, very famous for her popular novel, The Handmaid's Tale. And in 1985, when that book first came out, the dedication is actually to Mary Webster. Yes, the Mary Webster, Half-Hanged Mary. So if you take a look at The Handmaid's Tale, know that Mary Webster is Half-Hanged Mary. And in fact, Margaret Atwood actually wrote this very stirring poem about Mary Webster. And I actually want to, um, to share it with you. Um, it's, it's short, but it's really, really, really good. So um, again, this is um, by Margaret Atwood, writing about her ancestor, Mary Webster. Hope you're ready. When they came to harvest my corpse, open your mouth and close your eyes. Cut my body from the rope. Surprise, surprise, I was still alive. Tough luck, folks, I know the law. You can't execute me twice for the same thing. How nice. I fell to the clover, breathed it in, and bared my teeth at them in a filthy grin. You can imagine how that went over. Now I only need to look out at them through my sky blue eyes. They see their own ill will staring them in the forehead and turn tail. Before, I was not a witch. But now, I am one. So that was um, by uh, Margaret Atwood in 1985 um, when she was writing the dedication um, in the book The Handmaid's Tale. So um, it is one of the first stories that um, I had heard. There's actually a lot of um, stories of witchcraft from the Connecticut River Valley. Um, that predate uh, the Salem Witchcraft Trials. I think we mentioned that last week. This is just an incredible one. Um, in fact, in um, August of 1909, Hadley was celebrating its 250th anniversary, easy for me to say, and um, they actually did a float, uh, a parade float of Half-Hanged Mary. Can you imagine? Um, and they were all, all dressed up and uh, recounting 
the story of Mary Webster. Isn't that incredible? What an amazing, uh, amazing story. So you have the, the ghost story, the legend, and um, it's a lovely place to visit. If you ever have an opportunity to go out to Western Massachusetts uh, and check out some of the burial grounds out there, you'll find that they are, are really incredible. And um, every time we go out there, usually a couple times a year, we try to get to um, as many burial grounds as we can. And um, I'm always taking pictures and delving into stories, but that remains to this day one of um, one of my favorite tales, Half Hang Mary. What an incredible woman she was. A couple of years ago, um, I had uh, been asked to do a submission um, for a book called The Real Witches of New England, and I actually had to go to an event to promote the book. And I met a lot of people that actually knew this story and um, others that were like it throughout New England. So it was um, it was really cool to be in an event and, and talk about these things. So um, I really hope you liked the story of Half-Hanged Mary. Um, it's one of of my favorites. You can just you can just see it in your mind as it all unfolds. We're starting to come to the close of um, this evening's session. So um, I will continue to do this for as long as you folks are out there listening. Um, and um, if we do it again next week, I'll put up another poll. But again, it's up to you whether or not um, I come back and do this. And um, of course, I'll go through all your comments. I do really enjoy um, the commentary that you all put in there. So I try to take some time to answer those. It really, really means an awful lot to me. Um, I also want to thank um, those of you last week. Um, thank you so, so, so much for um, buying gift certificates and Venmo because, um, you know, all of my events uh, have been canceled until further notice. So that means, you know, no ghost tours, no trolley tours, no speaking engagements, none of that stuff. So um, I greatly appreciate all of you that were like, you know, let me get you a cup of coffee or what have you. Um, again, I, I just I feel just so connected to to everyone. So um Take a look at our calendar for next week and the following week at NewEnglandCuriosities.com. We have some great workshops coming up. Check out some of our other offerings. Please make sure that um, you like the page, you follow New England Curiosities. I'm on Instagram at RoxyZW. Um, so if you're not following me on Instagram, it's typically houses that um, look like they're haunted and lots of gravestones that you'll see in my Instagram feed. And um, thank you all so, so very much um, for your comments and your support. I really hope that it continues to give you something to look forward to. Um, I know I get very excited when Friday's coming myself to sit here and share stories with you. So I hope that you all continue to be well. And I look forward to chatting with you all really, really soon. So thanks again for joining me tonight. And of course... Pleasant, pleasant dreams, and I will talk to you soon.